0: Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market.
1: You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it.
0: Sheena, it is no secret that at Gong, we sell to salespeople. So I'm curious, what's your favorite part of selling or marketing to salespeople?
1: You know, before I was in this role, like I've interacted with sales folks a ton. I think it's maybe a stereotype, but the sales team is always like the funnest team at any company. It's like the team that you want to go hang out with. It's the team that you want to go grab a beer with at the end of the day or when you're traveling. And I've definitely seen that come to life being now a marketer and engaging with sales folks like yeah. They don't want the same old, boring, tried-and-true thing that they've seen for years and years. They just want to have a good time. They want to see something fun and be entertained and, and, and have a different perspective. So, personally, like that's something that gives me like, just some delight and changes up the pace.
0: I completely agree. You will never hear me argue uh, that the, a team is cooler or, <clears throat> or more fun to hang out with
1: <laughs> than a sales team.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite characteristics of salespeople is that they're opinionated. Uh, or conversationalists sometimes those go hand in hand sometimes not and you know on, on Gong's LinkedIn page you know we have a pretty big following from run like 80,000 you know sales and revenue folks uh, follow us and you know often we pose different questions and how to uh, and try to incite you know a conversation and genuinely you know learn from each other and see what's going on and you always get some really fun uh, responses from from the sales community and so uh, what we wanted to do was take some of those questions, the, some of the, you know, the conversations that got really heated and put our guest, Chris, to the test. Mm-hmm. And so we asked her questions like, what is the best cold call opening line, which is by far the most heated debate like on LinkedIn <laughs> that I've ever seen. It's, it's <laughs> amazing. Uh, other things like, you know, uh, can sellers truly create urgency? Or is that, you know, is that untrue? Is that just kind of like a perception? Uh, And another one was uh, if it's smart to demo on the first call or if that's a big no-no. So I'm excited for what we got to hang out with Chris because she is kind of an encyclopedia. Like she could reference many books and many frameworks that she has consumed. Yes. And it was really fun to watch her break down all of the questions. Uh, So sometimes you get a yes, sometimes you get a no, but oftentimes you get a depends and then she breaks down why. So I had a really good time with Chris.
1: Yeah, she was great. Uh, she is like a walking encyclopedia of every sales methodology and process that you've ever read about or heard about. And I think being able to reference them is what makes that, you know, enables her to have that really analytical and opinionated approach to right. what she does.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a hot take if it's not substantial, but she can she she can explain everything. Yeah, she backs really it cool. up. So. Yeah, and speaking of cool people I'd like to hang out with, Chris is on the list for sure. Uh, I'm vaccinated, I'm So next time I'm in, in the same city with Chris, we can all go get a drink. Let's
2: go hang out with Chris.
0: Chris, thank you for joining us for Reveal. I am pumped to have you on the show.
2: Thank you, Devin. I'm really happy to be here.
0: For the folks who might not know you, might not know what Free Will is, can you give us a quick overview of what you do there uh, as VP of Partnerships?
2: Sure. Uh, for us, Partnerships is synonymous with sales. So I'm basically the the VP of sales at Freewill. What we do is replace cumbersome paper-driven ways that donors could give to nonprofits with technology. So for example, you can think of how TurboTax replaced all the paper forms for taxes. We're doing that for wills. We're doing that for stock gifts. We're doing that for IRA giving, as well as being able to uh, let a nonprofit know you want to donate your 401k or your life insurance policy. So we saw a massive opportunity with a lot of baby boomers getting to the point where there's gonna be a huge um, amount of money that's gonna change hands over the next 20, 30 years to the tune of about $65 trillion. And what we're doing is building technology to help nonprofits tap into the types of donors that they might not have spent time cultivating in the past. Um, Typically a nonprofit would spend a lot of one-to-one time on high net worth individuals, but a a huge bulk of this money is gonna be coming from average Americans or lower income Americans and they still have assets that they can donate and they still have causes that they care about. So that's what we do.
1: I'm curious, like, did you see any changes in what nonprofits folks donated to over the past like, year and a half during this COVID time? Like, were there any interesting trends that you realized?
2: Uh, well, what was interesting is in the first half of 2020, so many different sectors were impacted differently. So if universities, for example, colleges, they're nonprofits, right? But suddenly they had no students on campus and a lot of their revenue stream was totally pulled away. Same for things like um, museums, arts and culture. So certain nonprofits were really, really hit hard where other types of organizations were suddenly you know, booming. So there was not an animal shelter that wasn't emptying out because people were now stuck at home and they wanted pets. So we saw huge success for animal organizations. Food banks were just completely slammed with donations. Um, hospitals, right? So if anything, we saw that there were certain cause areas that Americans were waking up to really wanting to get involved with, even mm-hmm. though we were in such a state of you know, economic uncertainty and turmoil. We did see that there was still a strong desire to give and contribute. Um, and so we, we ended up seeing by the second half of 2020, even though a lot of nonprofits had to lay off staff because of the economic uncertainty, many of them ended up getting such an increase in donations and particularly through things like stock giving um, and, you know, real-time giving and bequests. Also, P.S., the people looking for how to make an online will was at its highest peak in internet history by, you know, 5x, 10x, what it used to be at any other point in time because suddenly wow. folks were scared in a real way and realizing they needed to do some estate planning to protect their families and they needed a accessible way to do it. So um, 2020 ended up being... a a boom year for our business model, because on the one hand nonprofits needed to do something new and we'll get into this later, but this concept of innovation appetite and change intelligence is a huge piece of bringing a product to market. Um, We're only a three and a half year old or so business. And so we were a new idea going into a status quo operating industry and COVID presented um, really an opportunity for us because Americans were looking for online tools like estate planning and gift giving tools and nonprofits couldn't do what they used to do for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So um, we grew tremendously. I've got got a team of about 35 sales folks. We've got another 25 in customer success and account management. And a year and a half ago, we were maybe six or 10 people in in the revenue team. So we've grown pretty quickly.
1: Well, congrats on that, especially because you're doing so much good in the world. So I'd love to see that growth. Um, let's shift focus to, to you and to your own uh, you know, personal uh, journey. So you, you used to play D1 basketball, and I'm sure you've kept a lot of those experiences with you even now as you're in sales. Mm-hmm. Um, of all the lessons and the skills that you learned, which were most uh, surprising for you in the way that you've now applied them to your professional career?
2: Sure. Um, And before I answer that, I'll give the caveat of my career has mainly been with startups. Right. So the concept of building the ship while you're already out at sea is very much uh, what what the theme of of my career is. And I think playing view on sports, um, you know, going into college, I was a superstar basketball player in high school, and I anticipated being able to remain that when I went to Brown. I was not. And so I'd say the number one lesson I learned was really this concept of know your role and understand where you can be most useful. Sometimes that means you get to be the star, but more often than not, it means that you just figured out what is something that you enjoy doing and that's also gonna be super impactful to the business you work for, just do it. The more you do it and the more you prove out that it's something that's gonna be useful, you might end up creating your own role. Uh, So we have a lot of folks in my company right now that have been promoted up because they figured out what was useful and they were really good at doing it. And I'd say that that's um, instead of saying, I want to be the CEO of, a, of the company, um, it's saying, where can I be the most useful and impactful?
0: As someone who has always been a role player. I also learned that, but uh, much earlier than you, because I had to find a way. Hey, if I want to be on the team, I got to find what my role is and, uh, and do it well. Yeah. We chatted a couple of weeks ago to, you know, get acquainted before this. And I went back and forth on calling this episode hot takes or controversial. And I was leading towards hot takes because I didn't wanna sell our audience controversy, but I realized after a little Google searching that hot takes wouldn't wouldn't really be accurate because the actual definition of a hot take is, and I quote from Rand Webster dictionary, a published reaction or analysis of a recent news event that doesn't offer much in the way of deep reflection. And after meeting you, that whole lack of deep reflection bit would not do you justice. So I'm going to ask you some questions to get your input, which are bound to include deep reflection. Great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do this. So on our LinkedIn page at Gong, we like to uh, post different questions and kind of get feedback from our sales audience. And one that we did recently really split the room. And the question was to demo or not to demo on the first call. What do you say, Chris?
2: All right. Um, What I say is you have to really be mindful of where you are in the product adoption, uh, where your market is at and the product market fit. So if you have an organization and a company that there is a lot of market demand and the market is already well-educated on the tool, then you can very quickly jump into a demo. For example, when we were considering purchasing Gong, I didn't need to be convinced of the why I wanted to be shown, how does this actually work? Right? So we now know that, the majority of buyers are doing a lot of self-education, which is why you guys put out such great content, which is why you know, most organizations are really flooding the market with, here's all the benefits that you can have. However, uh, it, took, it takes a long time to get there. So in, in the majority of the roles that I play, it's really early stage companies. There's different types of salespeople. So there's what's known, and uh, HBR, Harvard Business Review, has a great article on this called The Sales Learning Curve. So anybody can go look that up. It talks about three different types of sales reps. You've got what's called a Renaissance Rep, a Enlightened Rep, and then a Coin-Operated Rep. A Coin-Operated Rep should probably do a demo on the very first call because that's what the buyer is looking for. A Coin-Operated Rep works for a company that's been established, that has a great product market fit. It's predominantly inbound, or at least the market is well-educated. On the complete flip side, a renaissance rep is really out there educating the market that it's time for a change. So a renaissance rep is very much what it sounds like. They have to be highly intelligent. They have to be creating. So if I, you know, most of the products and I've worked for, um, I've worked for over a dozen startups full-time and I've consulted and been an advisor to more than 40 startups in some sort of part-time capacity. It's always about how do we actually get the buyer? To realize that there's a problem that they need to change, sometimes it's by doing a demo because you finally see it, right? It's like, oh, I didn't even realize that this was available to me. So um, in the early in my career, I worked for many financial technology startups where we sold to professional investors such as um, hedge funds, you know, traders and analysts. They don't want a whole spiel; they just want to see that it works. So I could be in and out of there and close a deal literally in 15 minutes. Whereas other organizations, I might need to go in and for several meetings, just talk about the concept and help educate them on why things are changing and why they need to make a shift. The product itself isn't going to get me there. It's not just a in the moment decision. You have to look at how, how educated your market is and how much of a product market fit you have.
0: My thought is like some, some sales teams, I think have like strict rules on this. Like I've been on teams where it's like, do not demo on the first call, no matter what. Um, other teams where it's Devin you've been in the game for a while like it's your call you 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 play the cards you think that need to be dealt here Um, how can sales reps or and or sales leaders know maybe like what type of rep they are or what type of you know kind of like you said what kind of part of the cycle are they currently in so they know hey like probably shouldn't be demoing but maybe here's that one one one-off scenario
2: This is really uh, hard to put into just a few sentences, right? So um, a lot of, I can use big concepts like, do you have product market fit? But what does that really mean, right? And so I'd say easier ways to look at this are um, going back to sales metrics and sales numbers, right? So if you have a very small team and you've got less than five account executives selling a product, you don't necessarily have enough data to identify, is it my people? Is it my process or is it my product? And that's what we're just continuously refining, right? And my, my process, I can, I can structure and I can make, you know, enforce. But then I need to hire the right types of people that are going to execute on that, right? And then, but if your product's not a easily understandable product, you've got a whole different type of rep that you're going to need. So I'd say when you have a very straightforward technology where the product itself can be easily understood and the problem is easily defined and also accepted, you can go with coin-operated reps all the way. And they are gonna be chasing that quota and they're gonna be chasing that commission check, which is what you want when you know you've got a play that's gonna work. If you have no idea what the playbook is yet and you need people to come in to really uh, sit down and probe with the client and maybe provide feedback to your product team to say, hey, you know, the questions that I'm getting or the objections that I'm getting, is there something we could do to solve with the product? That means you need a renaissance rep. So that usually means it's in the very early phases of a product launch and go to market and you're still figuring out the pieces. And then that enlightened rep is somewhere in between where they don't need the full recipe, but they at least need to know that they're baking a cake or making a meatloaf and that there's a set amount of ingredients, but they can play with those ingredients a little bit. Is that is that helpful?
0: Very helpful, very helpful. And uh, I was trying to figure out on the first, uh, when you first described it, which one am I? Um, And once you use the meatloaf uh, analogy, I'm like, I'm definitely uh, I'm the Renaissance rep. I'm actually pretty good at, uh, you know, grabbing whatever's in the kitchen and making this deal uh, come together. But I've also been on the coin operated side where I've been at a business that was like, you know, a year or two away from IPO. They didn't need Renaissance Devin. They needed, you know, here's the playbook, run it, run it fast, run it often uh, and get as many deals across the line as you can.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting, just a, something that's um, interesting to highlight here. So at various points in my career, I've left startup and gone back to big companies. And you would think that big companies have and only need coin-operated reps. But again, you've got to look at product adoption curve. What I found, I, um, I recently had the opportunity to go and be back at a, a really solid product. I understood it. I'd bought the product myself many times. But I was coming in at a point in time where we were selling to the laggers on the product adoption curve. It was literally the mirror image of what it's like to sell to an innovator and early adopter because they still don't see the problem even though the rest of the market does so there it's a totally different type of approach and i found that it was a very very challenging sale because the process that the company had was no longer applicable but they were it was only because they had had so much success that they got all the way through the product adoption curve they were now selling to very much so a brand new market
1: yeah i think like anytime you're even at an established company if you're entering a new vertical you have a new product, yeah. you're going after some new segment that you haven't sold to before, mm-hmm. your, your reps have to mirror that renaissance rep that you talked mm-hmm. about, because they have to be able to navigate these new waters. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so even for upselling, right? I've worked for a lot of businesses where you have one initial play and one initial product, but then you wanna be able to create upsell and cross-sell potential, which means you're building new products, you're servicing new departments, and you're building the playbooks for them. So if you're depending upon the same person who opened and closed the first deal for a product that was just a you know chocolate chip cookie that you printed, and now you need them to go figure out what other types of baked goods do we need to make, um, there's a mismatch there. So a lot of times there's you know just an understanding of it's not just a company, it's the entire product suite that they're going to market with. There's a whole mix of um, maturity of those products.
1: Okay, Chris, so deep reflection number two. What's the biggest misalignment when sellers try to persuade the C-suite? Not
2: understanding the vantage point that the C-suite is usually looking at. So for example, many times in my career, I've had the opportunity to sell to Fortune 1000 businesses. I don't go into the C-suite talking about the nonsense that their people are complaining about. I read their financial filings, I read their analyst reports, and I understand what the market and the people that they care about's opinion is which is usually their shareholders usually it's the analyst professional investment community right so i think with the c-suite you have to understand who they are accountable to and for the most part they don't consider themselves accountable to the folks who are on the front lines who we're usually selling the technology to right especially when you're talking about software as a service the end user who's putting in the data or leveraging the data has a completely different workflow and a completely different work life than the C-suite. And so um, the smaller the company, the easier it becomes, because if you're talking to a CEO at a 100-person company, the CEO likely was doing that frontline work within the past year. So they get the pain, but the more senior you go up an organization, the user that you're usually selling to has a completely different pain point and the C-suite is usually very far removed and may not even have empathy or sympathy for that problem. So you have to really help them understand the problem from a totally different way. It requires much more strategic thinking. It requires, um, you know, simple words like personalization don't do it justice. You literally have to read through what are the strategic initiatives that they've decided are important for the company and how do you tag your product onto that?
1: Yeah, I think it it kind of ties back to the deep reflection number one that we were talking about is you have to understand where you are, where the buyer is, mm-hmm. what do they care about? You're not going to step into a meeting with an executive and, and pull out your laptop and show them a demo. You right. have to relate to where they are right. and what they care about and doing, and doing your homework ahead of time. Right. Um, and there's so much out there, especially for the Fortune 1000 type of companies, there is so much in terms of all of the financial reports, interviews mm-hmm. that they've done, um, You know, looking at different research reports. There's a tremendous amount of information. Chris mentioned three key ingredients to driving a successful sales team. The people on your team, the sales process, and the product. You can have a great sales process, for example, but bringing in the right people to execute on it is another piece of the puzzle. When it comes to the sales process, Chris says it's important to evaluate each potential buyer and research their business to find out what they care about. Gartner published a study stating that it takes six to 10 decision makers or influencers to get a deal done. This tells me that it's crucial to get buy-in at multiple levels from the executive level down. Like Chris said, each of these six to 10 potential decision-makers all have different business needs and problems. That's why it's important to get a hold on the business through research and relationship building. Your product might solve multiple problems, but it's crucial to tie it to the specific persona by asking the right questions. Gartner also stated that B2B buyers spend only 17% of time considering a purchase with the seller. This means you have to optimize your short time with them to push for the sale and use data to determine the most important buyer personas your rep should be talking to. Data is the key to maximizing that limited time you have with a potential buyer.
2: Yeah, and I'd say, you know, oh- the overall theme of what uh, will probably come out today is that I have a series of different mental models or frameworks that I'll reference back to when I'm answering your questions, right? So um, challenge your sale. What does that mean? It literally just means that you have a sales rep who is smart enough to go understand the ecosystem and all the different elements that are going to impact that client. And you have the wherewithal to put together the pieces of, hey guys, there's a problem here that you're not able to see yet. Here's how that problem starts to unravel here's how the problem ends up really impacting your business here's how our product solves that problem before it starts right and that is an education that is a teaching and a tailoring type sale and that's what challenger talks about right you have to know what's going on and not just read the last post that the company put out you really got to understand what's going on what who are they're you know you can use things like porter's five forces do they have competition coming in is there you know is there a problem in their supply chain? There's so much going on in the world right now during COVID that's impacting businesses from their supply chain, from their buyer. Um, you know, Can their buyers actually negotiate with them? Um, are they having to lay off staff? Like so there's so many things going on that a C-level person has those problems on their brain. And if you're talking to them about anything else, you're missing the boat.
0: I agree completely. I think I have a question for you, Chris, because the thing that I hear people battling with is like to use loss aversion or gain right? It's like pain or gain when you're in these meetings. I lean towards the loss aversion because what you just said kind of shows like, Hey, here's some upcoming trends. Here's some things that could affect you. You're not pressing loss aversion super hard. Um, but you're kind of, you know, it's, you're alluding to it versus where you go for the gain approach. You have to know a lot about their business. And I think a lot of times that's where sellers can misstep thinking they know more or can bring something to the table that the C level exec doesn't already know. Mm -hmm. So what's your thought there?
2: Yeah. I talk about sell to either fears or goals and I'm way more goal oriented selling. Um, that is where, again, we talk about change intelligence and innovation appetite. So you're right. It's highly unlikely that I'm going to know more about the C-suites business, just based on what I've, no matter how deeply I've researched it, they're living it day in day out. And most of the things I've read are probably going to be several weeks, um, if not several months behind. Um, but I think you can still walk in the door, with a consultative mindset and understand all the pieces of the ecosystem that they're looking at, and if they feel that they can chat with you as somebody who's gonna share some sort of new knowledge, right? so one of the first things you can do is, the first meeting you ever have with your first C-suite and your first company, you're gonna be the worst. As soon as you have a second meeting, you can reference back what you chatted about with this other peer. So when you can learn how to start curating all the information you're picking up from diverse conversations with executives, you start to figure out how to pepper in what you learned from your very last meeting or what you learned from your last five meetings. That's what the C-suite wants to know, right? They want to know how are my peers handling this? Um, and then you have to look at, you know, outside forces, they might be aware of it from a strategic standpoint. They're going to know their competitive landscape way better than myself. They're going to know their supplier landscape way better than myself, but they may not understand how the same problem that my product fixes is unraveling in each of those. Right? So again, I can start to then begin to paint a relative comparison of, okay, well, I'm working with this other organization. That's a lookalike for you guys. They spotted this problem a year ago. Here's what they've been able to do as a result. Oh, by the way, they're outperforming you.
0: I like that a lot. I am, uh, I'm watching Daniel Pink's masterclass right now. And I think it was yesterday's session was exactly about this. When you're talking to folks to, you know, there's so much information out there. Don't try to create information. Uh, curate it instead, which I think is exactly what you're talking Mm -hmm. about, which is just connect the dots of what already exists Mm -hmm. um, and let them kind of come to their own conclusions or correct you. And then you start a dialogue, which is not the worst thing. All right, we're going to move along here. You've heard the phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's also more than one way to skin a cold call. And we have some research uh, from Gong Labs that has shared the best way to do it. Now, our research shows that the best way to open a cold call is to say, Hey Chris, how have you been? And that it outperforms the age old, Hey, Chris, did I catch you at a bad time. This is another one that we put to LinkedIn and there was uh, heated. If you want to talk about hot takes, heated debate in the comment section. So I'm just curious to you, do you, ha- do you have a preference? Maybe as a, you know, as a sales leader, what you coach as a buyer, what you hate, what do you got for us?
2: Sure. Uh, so I, upon reflection, the. The former is probably, hey, Chris, how you doing, is probably in line with the story I'm about to share with you. Uh, I get cold called all the time, right? Especially when you're have when you either VP or chief revenue officer, you've got a job title, people just want to cold call you to sell, sell you their stuff. Uh, as a sales leader, I like to pick up the phone because I just want to see, is, does somebody got something new that I should teach my team? To this day, the best cold call I ever received is I picked up the phone and a young man said, hey, coach, how's your season going? And I said, I don't know who you are or what you're trying to sell me, but you just earned a couple of minutes of my time. And that's way more powerful than just the, how are you? Uh, all this person had to do was go onto my LinkedIn and something I very clearly you know, mentioned on my LinkedIn that I was very proud of is that I'd been a volunteer basketball coach at that point for something like you know 17 years. I've been coaching um, at this point for like 23 years, but I clearly care about it and I'm passionate about it. And he could have said that to 100 coaches that day but he got me with something because he showed me that he did his homework, right? He talked to me about something that I care about and something that I would want to talk more about. So I was willing to give up some of my time to me. How are you? The first thing in my mind is like, who the are you? Right? So I might get a little bit more defensive with that is now a bad time. The reason why people think that that's a good one, and I think Chris Voss talks about this, is the structure of the sentence, right? Is now a bad time? You're likely in your brain going to say, yes, it's a bad time. Psychology and sales tells us if we get the person to say yes, then we actually have a gain. So that might work. Usually I have found that when people say, is now a bad time, and you say it with your voice in a way that the person decides they want to keep talking to you, right? So I'd be very curious about your data and what you're actually looking at, because to me, I think there's a huge piece of the salesperson is the instrument. And if all you're doing is making a call, the first experience that a person has with you is literally the tone and sound of your voice. So I've been cold called by people who sound so amazingly pleasant that I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stay on the phone with you for just 10 more seconds to hear this. And then I've got cold calls from people. that's was like, wow, I do not, I don't even know what is, I don't want to talk to you anymore. All right? So, um, part of it is, is training a person to use communication in a way that they are, opening up the opportunity. And then the second is, yeah, back it up with data. But I I always try to go with something that's slightly personalized or something um, that at least they know I want to talk about it.
0: I like that you use the word instrument because I was uh, doing some voiceover training and they said your voice is an instrument. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought of it that way, but it is true. There's different tones, different songs, if you will. Um, The one that I always had success with was the ladder with a twist, which was like Hey Chris, did I catch you at a good time? If there is such a thing,
2: right? And there you go.
0: That that little laugh Mm -hmm. was all I wanted because then they're like, "Okay, what you got?" Right? And that was exactly what you said. Like I was just trying to earn in one sentence another thirty seconds or sixty seconds, and that was by far the best one I've ever come up with. And
2: this is where you know when I when I work with salespeople, I talk to them about there's a few different roles we have to play we have to have the brain of a lawyer that's going to remember every fucking thing you said. And I need to be able to use it against you later on. Right. I need to have the ability to diagnose like a doctor. I need to be able to draw out information and get you vulnerable and comfortable like a therapist. Right. But I also need to be an actor and an improv expert because the only way to keep you going with me is that we're going to, I'm going to get you to want to riff with me. And I do that through my voice. I do that through the different intonations. I do that through playfulness. And so when you have somebody just spitting out a cold call, and I can tell immediately I'm the 15th person you said this to in the last 30 minutes. I don't want to talk to you, but if you can bring a little bit of personality and you're also matching me where I'm at. So, for example, um, during COVID asking, how are you is probably not actually the best approach, Sure. right? Starting off, maybe asking some sort of question to check in with them might be a great approach, right? But asking the very direct casual question of how are you during a time when people probably were at their worst state? No. Right. So I think that we have to be very aware of what are the circumstances and how do we best tune in to the people that we're we're calling.
1: All right. So next deep reflection. Buyers, they hate being rushed, but sellers were on a timeline. And so we have these targets that we have to hit every month, every quarter, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on driving urgency? Is that something that's still relevant or is that just an outdated tactic?
2: It's 100 percent relevant but false urgency is the death of any sale. And so um, when Devin and I first spoke of this, uh, maybe you can explain the example again. He used something about a water pump and then he gave me two, two, different. he was like, oh, my wife is on my ass to get this water pump. I said, well, now I got your urgency, right? I know the emotional motivation behind why you need to purchase that. So I can create a lot of urgency with that. And then a second thing he mentioned was that there was something going on literally within the environment why they needed the water pump, right? So I forget the exact reason. But again, using a framework, there's two different things. So you can look at Dale Carnegie's sales advantage. He talks about primary interest, buyer criteria, other considerations, and then motivation, the dominant motivation reason, which is basically your emotion. So I know I can sell Devin that water pump like that if I just keep pressing the button on your wife is is really on you to get this, right? So you can stop that pain point immediately. That's urgency. On the second side of that, I look at something, uh, there's something called the PESTEL analysis, P-E-S-T-E-L. So what that is, is you look at outside influences, whether it be politics, economics, the environment, it could be social, cultural things, it could be legal, it could be technology changing. If there's a reason why you legally need a water pump or that there's literally something going on with rain and environment that you need a water pump, I just keep pushing that and I create the urgency. What we can't do is fabricate need. right? What we can do is shine the light on the need and keep highlighting how bad things are gonna to continue to get until you fix this problem. If you don't do that from the very start of the deal, the problem is you get you don't get to do that later on. So this is where discovery is critical. If you fail in your early discovery and you fail to outline what the actual problem is and how that problem is gonna impact your buyer, later on you can't create urgency.
1: What about the very common a driver of urgency that, hey, if you sign the deal by next week, you'll get 15% off.
2: Yeah, and how many times um, do do they not sign the deal and then you're still left giving them 15% off whenever they decided to sign it several quarters later? Right, so um, I've certainly used it, we certainly do that, but you have to have already lined up that that's actually the thing stopping you from getting the deal closed. So if you offer, this is one of my favorites, right? Negotiating, let's just pretend you're on the street and you wanna buy something from a little market. And you get say to, I want to buy this for seven dollars and they say no no it's ten dollars okay well and then he says well what if I give you uh two for fifteen well I just told you I only had seven dollars in my pocket so giving me two for fifteen doesn't matter right so you really have to understand what's the mechanics what are the levers you have at play some people just want a discount And that's why, okay, fine, we'll we'll now scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. Usually it's a budget approval process and there's a problem and there's something else that needs to be fixed first. And so telling somebody to sign on the 31st versus the first is our selfish need. And unless you can really line up with why there's something in it for them, throwing a discount, they're, they're usually unfortunately gonna just disrespect that. And they're gonna know that they can get that discount later on. I think what organizations have to do is they have to make it very clear and then hold firm that this, if they're going to use discounts as a um, urgency mechanism, that discount has to go away.
0: And I like, uh, the, the water pump example for, for more clarity, Sheena and listeners, I was like, I do need to buy some water pump thing. And water pump thing is about as much as I know about it. And I was asking Chris, I'm like, how would you drive urgency? Cause it's been on my whiteboard behind me for about four weeks. I've got to do it, but I don't really have urgency. And so I was thinking, what are the things that would make me move? Well, one, my CEO is my wife. So if she was like, hey, I need you to do it this weekend, I got you, I'm gonna go do it this weekend. Or I'm like, you know, I just moved into a new house and like, you know, there's a lot of you know new neighbors. If if some of the neighbors had come to me and say, oh, we've all got this pump. Like, what do you mean you don't have one yet? Then I might feel urgent mm-hmm. to, you know, I might have some urgency like, oh wow, I'm, I'm behind now. So I think that goes back to like your executive meeting, which was like trends. I'm gonna connect the dots for you it's really hard to make a reason for Devin to go buy that pump right after this, interview. just
2: even that little bit of information, right? The way my brain's going to take that is say, okay, so if I was truly trying to sell this to you and I would have done my homework, I would have known who your CEO was identified her, right? I would have known who your neighbors are, meaning your competition or other organizations I should name drop. And there clearly is a problem in the area where water pumps are needed by your quote unquote competition slash neighbors. So I can come in and educate, not just you, but who else? Because I know they're going to be a pressure point for you, namely your CEO. I want to make sure I'm educating your CEO on these problems, because if I've got her on you, I've got your neighbors giving credibility to this concept. And I'm sharing every day. I'm sending you a new article on, hey, spring is here. The rains are going to be even worse, particularly in your area. We're expecting six more inches over the next you know, six months. You need that water pump today. I keep drawing on all the things that are in the ecosystem around you to create the pressure and the urgency.
0: And uh, if you're listening to this and you sell water pump things, uh, by the time you hear this and it's edited and in your <laughs> inbox, like I'll already have bought one, like I'm sold. So like Chris, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let them know. Hopefully you'll get, uh, get a kickback there. Right. Last deep reflection. Uh, you have a quote that you uh, kicked to me last time. I'm just gonna tee it up and I'd just love for you to elaborate, Chris. Uh, your quote was improve sales, improve your life. What do you mean by that? Yeah.
2: So I, I do believe that sales is a craft that can be mastered, right? And so this is where this concept of, is uh, sales an art or a science? And the reality is it's both because you cannot master something without using a clearly definable metrics to measure if you're getting better. You have to have goals that you're trying to get towards. You have to have a process and a system in, way, in a way that you know that you're actually doing this. Um, but then at the same time, we have to bring what we talked about earlier, which is this essence, your personality, you're the actor, the improv in you, right? Where you're able to attune and that's the art part. Um, both of those combined together mean that you are learning how to form better habits that are going to serve you, that you learn discipline, you learn that you can um, have, you know, not instant gratification, but delayed gratification. You learn that you can actually have self-development and self-improvement. So if you're focusing on the process part, you can very quickly become much more efficient in every area of your life. If you're focusing on the art part of sales and that attunement, you're likely gonna get way better at understanding your friends, your partners, your family, your colleagues. You're gonna learn how to communicate in dialogue, not parallel monologue. You're gonna spend time understanding yourself and have self-awareness, but also awareness of how others are perceiving you in communication. And so all of that to me, uh, when you're working on more positive habits and you're working on more self understanding and self excavation and better dialogue, you end up having just a much better life.
0: Well said, well said. I uh, you you always assume someone's going to take, you know, the art or science and just make a very uh, persuasive argument. But when you tie both together, all I can do is nod and, and say yes.
1: It sounds like part of it is like some of the science comes in the homework and the preparation and the thinking ahead of time. And then the art is more like in the moment and how do you pivot and adjust and connect? Mm-hmm.
2: It's creativity, right? So pivoting and adjusting in a moment, to me, that's the definition of creating.
1: All right, Chris, we'll get into our last question, which we ask all of our guests, which is how would you describe sales in one word? Emotional. I like it. Do you want to elaborate a bit more?
2: Um, have you ever met somebody who closed a big deal? The second that that deal closed, have you ever seen a sales up go, ah! Mm-hmm. This pump, like there's adrenaline rush, and then have you ever met somebody the day, the second they lost that a deal, right? Oh yeah. It is such an emotional roller coaster, and we do this all day long. So I'd say emotional because there are definitely days where it's like you're dancing around the office, hitting the gong, and then there's days where you're like, oh dear God, are we all going to have a company and a job, <laughs> right? So it's an emotional roller coaster. <laughs>
0: Chris, I'm very excited that we got to hang out now twice. I think our listeners will as well. So I just want to say thanks for your expertise and your time. Thank you guys. I love
1: you. Every week we bring you a micro action, something to think about or an action you can put into play today. Chris talked about how important it is to identify your buyer and their specific pain points. In her experience, the further you sell up the executive chain of the company, the more different pain points you're going to hear. So in your next team meeting, go through with your team and make sure everyone is aligned on questions like, who uses my product? Is the use different depending on seniority at the company? What keeps each buyer persona up at night? And how are we helping them solve their problems? This conversation could be a dialogue with your team to share best practices or to go over data or even do a full-blown role play session focused on each buyer persona that's most important to your sales team. It's important to remember the who, what, and
0: how. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday.
1: And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there.
0: And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then.
1: And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal@gong.io. At